Hey, hey, everyone. Back again today to talk about Immanuel Kant's groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. Now, a few things to say before we get into there. You can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy if you want. Uh, if you're listening to this on YouTube, you can find it in podcast form via a link in the description or wherever you find podcasts. Uh, if you're listening to this in podcast form, it'd be worth checking out YouTube because I release videos every now and again, which you might like, you might not, whatever, it's there. Uh, there's also my Patreon and PayPal. For those that be willing to contribute, that would be great. And on that note, I'd like to thank a number of people, uh, Frank, Honrick, Ashul, Anshul, Eust, Nikki, Matt, James, John, C, Killswitch, Paul, Amrit, Yao, and uh, Ashley, who've all been really helpful in keeping this going. And if you can contribute, that'd be great. If not, you know, uh, watching the videos, uh, liking, subscribing, telling your friends, that all helps a lot. Oh, and if you're listening to it in podcast form, of course, I uh, would love a five-star rating. So if you can do that, that'd be great. Leave comments, um, and I'm going to start responding to them in the episodes here, but there haven't been enough on uh, the podcast forms for me to really give that time. All right, so Kant. Now, there are a few more things I want to say here as to my justification of doing this text. I went after reading the Critique of Pure Reason and I jumped right into the Critique of Practical Reason and I was reading it and I was like, what the hell is going on here? I, I don't understand. So I reached out to a buddy of mine who who does his, a lot of his work on Kant, uh, Dylan, so thank you, uh, who said you essentially miss the, the skipping, the jumping stone or the, the necessary step between the critique of pure reason and the critique of practical reason, and that is this book, The Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals, uh, which is why I'm doing this one, which is also to announce, I guess, that I'm going to be spending a little bit of time with Kant on here from this text moving into the critique of practical reason, and then from there, I believe, the critique of judgment. So you can expect quite a bit of Kant, and then I'll probably never return to him again. Okay, now, in order to understand this text it's important to take some very important insights from the critique of pure reason. Now, of course, if you want the biggest you know, amount of understanding or you wanted the strongest approach to this, you should go and read the critique of pure reason. If you don't have the time for that, uh, you could check out my videos on it, even though I'm not totally satisfied with how I approached it. Um, I think that I left a lot of stones unturned and I didn't draw as many connections as I should have. And with that being said, I'm going to take a few minutes now just to explain some of the key ideas from the critique of pure reason that you need to know in order to really grasp what's going on in this text. And the first thing I want to call your attention to is that here he's setting up a metaphysics, which might seem strange if you've read the first critique, that is the critique of pure reason, because there he sets out why metaphysics normally leads to um, uh, some impasse. How you can't really explain if there or prove that there's a God. You can't really prove if there's a soul. You can't really uh, pro prove that there's such a thing as infinity. Because as humans, we don't have that connection to these transcendent ideas. We only exist in a kind of material, physical phenomenal way. So one of the really important uh, distinctions that he makes in the critique of pure reason is between the phenomenal world and the noumenal world. And he says that as humans, we engage with the world through our senses. So because of that, if I touch this table that's sitting in front of me right now, all I am receiving from this tape, uh, sorry, from this table is sense data that my brain makes sense of. I don't actually engage with the table in its own terms. So Kant says that all people engage with things in different ways, and those ways are going to be determined by their own, maybe their own physical composition, their own history, their own experiences that are going to affect the way that they engage with this table, because we don't all have the same experience of a table or of a wall or a phone or, or any 
kind of physical object in the world or rock, you know, to be a little bit more naturalistic about it. We don't all have the same experience. And that is because the noumenon, which is the so-called, what I will just say, is the kind of truth of the object, is not accessible to us. We only have access to what our senses allow for. And that is only a connection with the phenomenal world. Okay, I think that's fairly clear. Now, he sets out to show that because we only have access to the phenomenal world, we can't explain anything about the noumenal world. The only thing we can do is speculate that it's probably out there. So behind the table, there is probably a, a truth of the table, but we can never access it. And the, he says that the proof that the truth is there is the fact that we can have an experience of it. So we can experience the table. So therefore, beneath the table, that is beneath our uh, kind of perception of it, is a real thing that is emanating from which these perceptions emanate, which is, I think, pretty fair. And I don't, I think that he's right about this. Now, the same can be said about humans, which is what he's going to get into here in the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. Uh, but there are a couple things I want to say about it first. Humans can experience the world, and we are kind of special in that way. And to some extent, I can see the same uh, generosity being extended to like animals, even plants to some extent. Um, but he's really focusing on humans because humans have certain cognitive faculties that make sense of the world too. We have a reason, which is very, in some cases, peculiar to or specific to humans. So humans can perceive this world. We perceive phenomena. We perceive images and appearances. But we are also, like everything else in the world, we also have an, a noumenon. We have uh, a kind of intrinsic side of us that we can never access. Because anytime we reflect on ourselves, we are reflecting with our senses and or with reason that we've only acquired through our experiences in the world. That is in the world of appearance and in the world of uh, physical laws. So what are these physical laws? It's quite simple, really. He says that everything follows the law of cause and effect, which, you know, might appear to be a truism and might appear not worth mentioning. But he says that it's impossible for us to imagine a single effect without attaching a cause to it. So nothing exists in this world without there being some cause to attribute to it. And because of that, humans are not free because we're always already determined by some predetermining cause, which doesn't mean that we don't have a choice in like a single moment. But those choices are greatly hindered and they're determined in advance by the previous instances that um, affected how we would, you know, come up with a choice or how that choice would work itself out for us. Now, Kant says that we don't have, with that, we, we don't have freedom, which he's going to come to disturb a little bit or, or to uh, problematize, starting here with the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. Um, and as this kind of spoiler alert, he says that this law of cause and effect only applies to the world of appearances, the world of phenomena, the world that we see and can feel and touch. It does not apply as far as we know, because we don't know anything about the noumenal world, which is the world of things behind the appearances. We don't know if the law of cause and effect applies there. So he says that freedom exists. Because we know, and this is only speculative, and it's metaphysical in that way, we know that there are noumena. And therefore, we know that they exist outside of the law of cause and effect, and are therefore free. And because we as humans both have the capacity to perceive the world in terms of um, cause and effect in the phenomenal appearance-based world, and we are also noumena, beneath our appearances is a capacity for freedom in our noumenal side. Now, Kant doesn't say you can just, you know, with enough analytical rigor, uh, kind of 
work through the appearances of ourselves as humans to get to the truth of, uh, to get to the truth of our kind of noumenon. He doesn't say that because we can't do that. But instead, he's going to ask what it means if we are, in fact, free in terms of our noumenon. And that sets what I think he's doing here. That is in the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals, which is the longest introduction ever. I'm sorry, but I think it was necessary or, you know, I just didn't want anyone to be confused. So he starts out this book by looking at what the ancient Greeks thought about philosophy or how they divided up philosophy. And they divided it into three camps, into natural science, which was called physic uh, for Kant, ethics, which was called ethic and logics, which was called logic. Um, these these three branches of philosophy. So he further taxonomizes these three camps to say that they can be divided into two, that is material and formal knowledge, where material knowledge relates to knowledge of the world, right? So that would uh, include natural science or physics, and also ethics, because ethics is concerned with what we do as humans in the world, what it is we should do to be virtuous. For anyone that's maybe read Aristotle, that's a pretty key term, virtue, to have virtue. Uh, and then there is formal knowledge that is concerned with logic, which is essentially the form of understanding and reason that is abstracted from the physical world. So that is concerned primarily with our very capacity to think, right? So material knowledge is empirical. It is concerned with things in the world, and that, to reiterate, uh, is concerned with ethics and natural science. Now, ethics relates to morals, which isn't, I don't think, a strange thing to say. Uh, when we are being ethical, we are being moral. And that's what he's really concerned with here in setting out what it means to be moral. And I would, I just want to say one more thing about the last book. So in the Critique of Pure Reason, when he ends it, it might, it wouldn't be surprising to me if someone read it and was like, okay, well, now what? Kant, you've said nothing is, is true. We only deal with the world of appearances. So now what do we do? And this book here is him starting to lay out what it is we do now. What we do with the knowledge that there is the noumenal world and that there is the phenomenal world. And how that relates to how we can exist in the world. Just to lay that out there. So that's what he's doing here. Okay, so to reiterate, we have material and formal knowledge. So material knowledge can be predicated on experience because it's empirical and because natural science, for example, regards laws of nature considered as something known through experience, while ethics, that other branch of material knowledge, concerns laws of the human will as far as it is, it is affected by nature. So the difference is that the former, that is natural science, is concerned with what does absolutely happen, and the latter, which is moral or ethics, is concerned with what should happen, so what, what we should do as humans. So he adds to this, to, to formal knowledge, I should say, which we've just described the status or the title of logic, he says that that can be broken into two as well, where we can have... Um, we can have logic or we can have metaphysics. So metaphysics, sorry, metaphysics is concerned with questions that aren't physical. So asking about things like God, like immortality, like the soul, like infinity. These questions are not physical in that they are metaphysical. They deal with things beyond physics, beyond the physical world. So as far as the metaphysics of morals is concerned, what he is laying out here is that he's going to take from formal knowledge this branch of logic that is metaphysics, that is concerned with these questions of morality, but he's going to attach to it the material knowledge associated with ethics that also is concerned with his morals. So he's going to take from formal knowledge and apply it to material knowledge, which isn't out of the uh, ordinary for him. That's essentially what he does in the Critique of Pure Reason. He uses, quote-unquote, pure reason to apply that against experience because he says, or well, he says, we can't know if there's a God. So what can we use our reason for? And he's like, well, maybe we can, with reason, 
turn that reason back upon ourselves and ask what it is in our experiences that makes reason possible. So he's using pure reason to describe unpure things, that is, things that are tainted by experience. And tainted is a hard word, and I don't mean any kind of pejorative um, you know, uh, insinuation there. I just mean it in that he is using reason to describe things that aren't universal, like um, the experiences we have of the world, even though, as I should say, experience is the one universal thing that all humans have. We have the capacity to experience. So he breaks these down, right, into formal and material knowledge. And he says that, you know, it's important to lay these out in this way to taxonomize them and to make these kind of this kind of chart. Uh, because then you can have different people concerned with different camps of philosophy in this way. So you can have the people concerned with uh, natural science in relation to material knowledge and people concerned with ethics and people concerned with logic and people concerned with metaphysics. And it is necessary to do that to develop as holistic an understanding of philosophy or an approach to philosophy as possible. So he's going to take his own side and he's going to say he's concerned here with looking at moral philosophy, so ethics, like like I already said. Because he says that such a philosophy must exist, or such an object of that philosophy must exist, because of the existence of a common idea of duty and moral laws. So, for me, I was like, wait, how do you, how can you say that, Kant? I thought you said we can't prove that there's any kind of, like, true quality of a thing in itself. How, how do you then go from the first critique to this? Which is essentially what he goes on to prove in this book and in the critique of practical reason. But for now, I will say the reason that he's able to say that is again because of this split between the phenomenal and the noumenal world, where he says that as humans, we exist in the noumenal world as well. We don't have any purchase on it. We don't know what it looks like, how to engage with it, or anything like that. But because we know it's there, And we know that it is constitutive of the phenomenal world. That is, it is the base upon which the phenomenal world rests. It has a structure that structures the structure of the phenomenal world. So therefore, it must have some organizing principle. Just like the physical world, the world of appearance, has the uh, organizing principle of cause and effect. So we can assume the same thing in the noumenal world, which is... It is then not too far afield to say that it has some laws. And who's to say it can't have laws that govern the way things should uh, operate in the world that is morally or ethically? So the only way we could possibly speculate about this, the existence of this numinal world, the existence of these moral laws or ideas of common duty, is through reasoning, what he calls a priori reasoning. That is reasoning that is totally detached from anything empirical. Because if we attached empiricism to it, we would not be able to develop any universal understanding. Because we'd only have um, all of these disparate pieces of evidence that don't cohere into a grand narrative. And if you want a little bit more about how that's impossible, I think Hegel demonstrates that really well in the phenomenology of spirit. When he's looking all over for... Uh, a kind of guiding notion under which or kind of umbrella term under which to um, bring everything together to kind of find the truth of all things. And he says that you can't find it by like looking at the specifics of the world because everything is so different. You can't draw a connection between a fish and between a king. Like there's nothing common there. So what is it then that can bind them? And that's how he, he works through that process. Now, having said this, Kant doesn't want to completely eschew experience. He doesn't want to completely uh, get rid of experience. Because like in the first critique, the critique of pure reason, he sees it necessary that we don't stray too far away from experience with pure reason alone and then claim to have solved, you know, mysteries of the universe pure transcendently. That is, with, um, with reason that has fled the limits of human understanding and has stumbled into illusion it has uh put forward theses that it could not possibly prove like the existence of god for example even though 
He's going to prove the existence of God in the second critique, the critique of pure reason, but we'll get there. So he doesn't want to completely get rid of experience because he wants to, in his words, pick out the cases where the laws apply, these kind of universal laws, where they apply in the real world. So we're going to always be coming back to the real world to kind of test our hypothesis and to let the laws get into the person's will. And this will is a possible pure will, or what is also called the good will, which is for him, all of this is kind of an effort to explain the practical use of a priori principles, which I'll explain, so don't don't get scared, and to make sure morality isn't corrupted. So the, the goals of this book are twofold. That is to make practical use of a priori principles and to make sure morality isn't corrupted. So practical use of a priori principles, which could also be called uh, pure practical reason, is something that he likes. He likes pure practical reason, as opposed to practical reason, which he critiques in the second critique. Now, what he means by it here as practical use of a priori principles or pure practical reason is that he's using reason to explain the existence of the will that derives from the noumenon, that derives from the world that we can't see or experience or touch, but that with our reason alone, we can speculate might exist. He's saying we can speculate this might exist And because it might exist, it might have practical implications in our lives in the phenomenal world. So it is only by our application of a priori ideas, ideas of reason alone, that we can explain certain phenomena in the phenomenal world, certain instances, certain actions in the phenomenal world. And then he also wants to say to make sure that morality isn't corrupted. So if there is this thing called the moral law, we have to make sure that from its passage from the noumena to the noumenal world to the phenomenal world, it doesn't, uh, it isn't mutated into something uh, negative. It maintains its status if it does in fact exist. So there's another thing I said in there that might need a little bit more explaining, and that is the idea of the will. So what the hell is that? What is the will? He says that the will is someone's capacity or ability to control how they behave in conformity with the representation of certain laws. So the will is the compliance to certain laws. Now he's going to add to this that the will itself, if it exists in the noumenal world, doesn't ever manifest itself in specific ways in the phenomenal world or in any specific form, but is instead concerned with how it looks. Uh, That is, it is concerned with itself as will alone, not as a specific will or, or doing a specific action, but as itself as will alone. So that puts us here into the first chapter, which might hear that 23 minutes in the first chapter, um, which is what he call he titles it moving from common sense knowledge to philosophical knowledge about morality. So he starts at this chapter by saying that the only way there can be goodness in this world or that there can be a thing called the good is if there is such thing as a good will, which derives from the noumenon that isn't subject to the prejudices of uh, the phenomenal world. And this is something Nietzsche writes about as well in, um, you know, beyond good and evil and truth and lying in the non-moral sense, but that's for another day, at least those connections. So without a good will, it doesn't matter what you do or possess, you you will essentially be unhappy. So you need this this goodwill is what is sets the base or is the base of fulfillment to some extent. Now this idea of unhappiness is tricky, and if you watch or read anything about this, I find you'll at least in my experience, you're going to get a lot of people trying to give you real world examples, and that is. Going, they're almost always wrong or misleading, I should say, because he is not concerned here with what the will does in the form of actions in the real world. So this doesn't have to do with like my engagement with a bartender or my being a good person to like a cab driver or something, which are some of the examples I've seen. 
because he is concerned only with the form of the will itself, not specific things it does, which might seem confusing, but I hope over the course of this it will become clear. Because if we attach to it the promise of happiness, that is, that it can give us joy, then we are too quick to assume that our experiencing the goodwill will suddenly manifest itself in our wants and desires being realized in the physical world, in the world of appearances, which we can't ever hope for because then it is no longer about our love of the will itself, of our capacity to will, the goodwill, and it is instead the promise of us receiving something good in the end which is Kant doesn't like because because then uh, it doesn't give us the truth of the will. It becomes totally subjective. So one person might find their fulfillment in doing an altruistic act. Let's say, I don't know, they give over their fortune to pover, impoverished people or something, uh, which would be a good thing. But if they take from that a great sense of satisfaction and joy, then we have moved away from goodness for the sake of goodness, and it has become instead um, goodness for the sake of this happiness. So when Kant says that if you don't follow the goodwill, you are going to be unhappy, we have to be very careful not to say that the goodwill necessarily implies happiness, because that can be a distraction for us. It can take us away from the goodwill itself. And that's an argument that is going to really develop over the course of these two books, that is this one and the Critique of Practical Reason. So in relation to the will, reason is practical insofar as, as it has an influence on the will itself. So reason is not essentially bestowed upon us to determine what we need to satisfy the will. So like we don't use our reason to say, oh, to, to satisfy the will, I need to donate all my money to poverty, which would, you know, if you had the means, that'd be a wonderful thing to do. But that doesn't give us the goodwill because that is too empirical. It's dealing too specifically with events in the world to satisfy the will, to satiate the will, whereas the will being removed from the world in the form of the noumenon can't be satiated by events in, in the world. But reason, remember, is the bridging between the noumenal world and the phenomenal world because we attain reason through the phenomenal world through our capacity to experience so we experience things and then we can we can develop reason through that plus our having the cognitive faculties to understand the world and to make sense of it so we are given reason from both the physical world and from our intrinsic capacity as humans so in that way it bridges the gap between the phenomenal world and the noumenal world. So reason has that kind of practical capacity to work upon the will and to see if it can be applied. So a person that is working out of a, a true moral law does so for the true moral law. They do not do it for any other reason. They do it because they know they must. That is like the closest thing that I can kind of give to a real world example, even though you should take it with a grain of salt and be prepared to completely criticize it, is if you sacrifice yourself like um, for some end. Let's say it was an end that was totally uh, uh, separated from like patriotism or any promise of like an afterlife or anything like that. But you do something that you are so sure needs to happen even though it'll bring you the greatest harm possible and you will get nothing out of it. There, you won't get any joy. You know you won't get any recognition after you die, let's say. Let's add that in there. Um, and there is no afterlife to make you, you know, where you can experience bliss. You do it against all better judgment and you know you have to do it. Like someone jumping in front of a, you know, a train to save someone. I don't know. But imagine that in their mind, they knew they wouldn't be recognized for having done that act, yet they do it anyways, and they lose their life for it. That might be somewhat of an example of this goodwill being enacted, because it is a duty that we can't explain. We can't say, oh, they did that because they got this out of it uh, in the empirical world, or they got some kind of empirical thing out of it. They just knew they had to do it. So what does it actually look like 
as a law for Kant. And it looks like what he calls the categorical imperative, which is probably why if anyone's listening to this, it's, it's probably for that reason you want to learn about that thing. And the categorical imperative goes as follows, and it takes a few different forms. But this is the first form it takes and is probably the one people are the most familiar with. This is the law. I ought never to act in such a way that I couldn't also will that the maximum which I act should be a universal law. So let me break those down a little bit. Uh, a maxim is a subjective want. So I, um, for myself, I drink coffee every morning. Uh, that's a that's a maxim of mine. Even though, because I do it every day ritualistically, I could see myself naively associating it with law because it's just part of my daily life to the point that I don't even think about it. I just know it has to happen. But of course, it's only a maxim. So what the categorical imperative is, is the imperative that you act on any one of your maxims only if you can imagine it being a universal law. Now, Kant isn't saying that you shouldn't, you should just not do anything if you can't will that maxim to be a universal law. He's not saying just sit at home and in, in, in a corner and not do anything. He's saying we have the capacity as humans to imagine us doing things because we know that they are good. We as humans have the capacity to reflect on our on our actions to be able to say hmm maybe i shouldn't do that thing and kant says that that is very mysterious because if we were as humans purely determined by cause and effect which which he's right about he's totally right that all things in the world are determined by cause and effect or by some cause that produces an effect then we wouldn't have freedom of choice but he says that we kind of do have choice to some extent, even though we are determined by our pasts, by some some past, even if it's not ours, that troubles the idea that it's just purely determined for us. So as humans, we house the capacity to reflect and to be able to say, should I do this thing? And the only way that Kant is able to bridge the gap between experience and universal noumenal law is by saying we as humans might have the capacity to act, but it is only when, and we always have this capacity I'm about to say, that we can reflect and look upon something as being good in all instances that we see ourselves applying a subjective maxim to the uh, scrutiny of a universal law. And so we find the bridging of the two, the phenomenal and the noumenal world in that moment. And it's in this way that he says that common sense is better equipped to understand morality, that is pure, through pure practical reason, because it is not, it is not led astray like pure reason is where pure reason would be like, oh, I'm, I'm not concerned with these empirical uh, these empirical problems that present themselves in the form of maxims. There's nothing uh, universal there because that's just, you know, everything will change based on whatever the instance is. It doesn't matter. Let's concern ourselves with the universal, with God, with truth. Um, whereas Kant is like, no, 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 no. Because within these maxims, that is their form. The fact that we can say this is something i should do because i know i should do it but i you know i don't know why but i just know i should do it it is in that form in that experience that we can infer a connection to the universal but of course on its own common sense doesn't have the capacity to really understand these universal laws because it, it just gives itself over to the subjective maximus of the person and it doesn't draw that connection from the form of the maxim the fact that we can have maxims that we can put up against universal laws, it doesn't have that capacity. So it must then call upon, uh, it must call upon philosophy, must call upon reason to make sense of that. And that propels us here into chapter two, moving from popular moral philosophy to metaphysics of morals 
or metaphysic of morals. So if we're going to talk about duty, that is what we must do as humans in order to satisfy the moral law, if it can be said to exist, we can't find anywhere empirically. We can't look to the empirical world and find the reason for that because it only ushers from the moral world, the moral law in the noumenal world. And to really emphasize Kant's humility here, he says that, in these are his words, so our concern is with a kind of action of which perhaps the world has never had an example. So he's saying we might not ever see this be realized. That is a duty that directly emanates from the moral law. So the example I gave before of someone, you know, dying, you know, sacrificing themselves might not have ever happened truly for the moral law. And that's just an example that is can easily lead us astray. So again, don't cling on to it, uh, but just use it as a heuristic or as a um, like a teach, teachable moment or teaching something to learn from uh, as far as the application of this. So he has a lot of humility saying we don't know if this thing can be realized. And it is therefore impossible to teach moral law or to imitate it. Like, for example, people wanting to uh, act like God. Or, or act in God's image, like with in, in Jesus's image or something, that can't ever happen. Because if God was in fact moral, truly moral, humans don't house that capacity. Because, you know, we do it, even if we were to do it perfectly, in the case of the God example, let's say you were Christian, um, there was the promise of divine reward in the end, which suddenly takes it out of the will itself or of moral law itself and it becomes instead about the promise that is the thing that is promised you for satisfying it. So it is here he's trying to move away from uh, experiences in the world, or that is trying to find universal laws purely in experiences. And he says we must instead look to the metaphysics of morals. We must look at it not in, from the empirical world to the, uh, the noumenal world, or to the world of reason and, and, and anything like that, we must start with the world of reason and then work and see if our laws that we derive from reason can be applied to the physical um, phenomenal world. And in case it wasn't clear, I'm using the word phenomenal to refer to the world of phenomena, not like phenomenal and like, oh, what a wonderful world, just in case someone was confused. But again, we're not totally... <laughs> removing ourselves from experience, we are looking to see how reason as a priori uh, thought can apply to practical rules and laws. So in his words, um, to derive actions from laws, uh, you need reason, which is essentially what will is as practical reason. So we're going to move now into his uh, a more deeper dive into a more thorough reading of the categorical imperative. So he says that when we have a law or an objective principle constrain a will or kind of determine what a will can't or can or should do or ought to do, it is called a command of reason. And its verbal expression, if it is to have one, uh, is called an imperative. So just because an imperative say what the will ought or ought not to do doesn't mean that the will will necessarily abide because, you know, people are flawed. People, uh, if this whole discussion of the moral law is true, we can't lose sight of the fact that humans are flawed and that we have our own subjective desires, our own action drives, uh, drivers, what he calls also pathological impulses. And he doesn't mean pathological in any pejorative way. He means it in that it's just our own, like determined by our own desires. So we have this imperative, which is like a command from the will. And the imperative can assume two different forms. Either it can be a hypothetical or a categorical imperative. Now, we already know what the categorical imperative is. It is a law that refers to itself only and makes the law itself the end goal. But, and I'll explain that more in a second, uh, as for the hypothetical imperative, he says that it is a, an imperative, it is a command, that says, do this thing and you will get this reward. So it is referring to an exterior source or an exterior object that is the end goal of the duty, of the imperative. 
So it removes the person from the imperative itself towards something else. Whereas with the categorical imperative, it is about the imperative alone. It is something that must be done for the sake of it being done. So to repeat the first form of the categorical imperative, it is act only on that maxim that the that through which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law, that that maxim itself, you can look at it and say, this is something that should be done. And in every moment, it's something that can be done by anyone else. So therefore, I have the justification of doing it. And that, like, again, I can't give you an example of this happening in the world. And if you ever watch a video or hear someone explaining it uh, or read something where they give you an example, be very wary. It's very difficult to claim to have given an example. Um, So it is only, again, only the form, the very capacity that we have to ask, can this be a universal law? And if we can act upon it in that way, having accepted it, but it is only subjective, then we have shown to ourselves that it is possible. And that is what is interesting and important for Kant. So an example that wouldn't be a categorical imperative is like if someone, uh, and he gives a lot of kind of hypotheticals as to what aren't categorical imperatives, which I'm not going to get into all of them because it's I don't find it all that useful. Um, but he gives the example of someone lying to save face. Like, let's say I lie uh, about, um, I suddenly I'm at a loss words i lie to explain why i was late to uh let's say a family event when i was actually out drinking with friends for example i mean that's whatever uh if i would i would be completely out of this world if i were to say to myself wow um i should lie and everyone should lie all the time because of you know the goodness that i got out of that like i got a free pass essentially because the people that I was lying to believe me. You know, I told them that I was running late because my, I had a flat tire or something, you know, whatever. Um, it would be, I'd be a really strange person if I were to say, wow, what a great thing to, it is to lie. Everyone should lie all the time. It should be a universal law. It should be a law. Um, so we, you know, clearly that is not a categorical imperative, you know, to lie all the time. And even to tell truth all the time is kind of sticky territory because telling truth can get people in a lot of trouble in a lot of different ways, which doesn't mean that it's not perhaps better, uh, but it does present various problems in the realization of this categorical imperative. So we have yet to show, though, a priori or through reason, uh, that this kind of imperative really exists and that obedience to this law is duty or is, or is action proper, you know, good-willed action. So to properly assess this to see if it really exists, we have to we have to traverse reason, but not speculative reason, but moral reason or moral philosophy, I should say. Not speculative philosophy. Now, this is the posit that the existence of the human, the thing that is an end in itself, because we know as a, as a noumenal thing, we have a kind of truth beneath our appearance and i use the word truth in in you know scare quotes like it's just a word i'm using for lack of a better word uh because we know that the word truth holds such like such strong cultural connotation that we have to be very careful with its usage but i'm just saying the thing that exists beneath the appearance when i'm referring to the word truth here so we know that the human is an end in itself They are end of all experience and phenomenal world and in their capacity to abstract from that world um, in form of understanding and reason. So what does that mean? That wasn't Kant. That was my own note. What does that mean? It means that as humans, we we are intrinsically capable of understanding the world. That is, we have the capacity to understand that there is a thing called space and there is a thing called time. And this harkens back to the first critique again, but I won't get into it too much. And he says that we have a natural understanding of space and time. So as humans, we are the beginnings of 
essentially the world because we create it in our minds. It doesn't exist out there uh, that we know of. We only know it through our senses. But we are also the end in that we ourselves are the, the, the means by which it happens. And we are the end point where, where, where we turn the world and objects and experiences into understanding or sorry, into reason through the understanding and through our other faculties or other cognitive faculties. So what this does for Kant is it makes such a being, that is humans, an object of respect and something that sets limits to what anyone can choose to do because we have this innate capacity and the fact that we have this kind of innate capacity leaves a sliver of hope and this is what Kant is really interested in. He's like, we have this innate capacity to understand space and time. We have this innate capacity to turn sense data into reason through the understanding. We have this innate capacity to all experience. You know, we all have this. Therefore, there's a small chance that it was made by design. It was made or it comes from something. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen haphazardly because it seems like all too much of a coincidence, which it might be, but he's saying that it's, there's that chance, and that's what he's really focusing on here. So rational beings, then, can't be replaced by anything else to which it would only be a means. So um, you can't say that this understanding is just for the sake of reason, for example. It is for the sake of the understanding itself. Or you can't say... Our capacity to experience is just to experience like pleasure or joy. It is in itself what is necessary for experience, which is all it needs to do. And it is really a, you know, to go off on a little bit of a tangent, it's really an amazing thing that we have consciousness and that we can experience at all. Um, it, and it's really, uh, I find myself at moments, you know, just thinking about this. Uh, you know, really taken aback at, at what it means to be conscious and what it means to be able to experience things. But anyways, so because humans are necessary in terms of our capacity to experience, being very specific in that capacity, humans are uh, are not contingent as far as that capacity goes. So they, the categorical imperative, that is the meeting of these subjective principles with some universal law, have to come through humans because we are the bridge between the two we are the thing that connects the maxim with the possibility of it being realized as universal law even as just a form so that brings us here to the second form of the categorical imperative so you remember the first don't do anything unless you can will it to be a universal law here we have the second all humans subjectively regard themselves as ends in themselves making it an objective, practical ground. So we are all ends in ourselves. We are not subjective or contingent upon anything. We are only the means and end of all experience. So we then arrive at the following imperative, practical imperative. Act in such a way as to treat humanity, whether in your own uh, person or in that of anyone else, always as an end and never merely as a means. So we recognize then in other people that they too are the ends of the whole chain of experience, the whole possibility of experience in the world. And the implications for this are pretty amazing, I think, because, you know, I think maybe today it'd be a lot easier for us to grasp, but I imagine at the time when, you know, things like colonialism are going rampant, um, you know, we're starting to see the roots of, of what will, would become to known as racism, which racism follows these events. What came before was something um, different, a different kind of oppression, but racism is specific to, to the formation of certain kinds of power as just an aside. Um, but things like slavery are just, you cannot justify if you follow this imperative to treat someone else as an ends, not as a means to something. So I look upon someone as being their own selves, and we get this a lot in Hegel too, but as an end in themselves in this whole um, kind of 
journey of experience. But anyways, and he adds to this that once we've accepted that everyone else can be regarded, should be regarded as an end in themselves, he says that everyone positively positively should try or tries to further the ends of the others as far as they can, which is pretty radical. I mean, I tell some politicians to read that and they would, their heads would explode like, oh, you expect um, us to help someone else? How dare you say infringe upon my rights um but anyways it's an aside and that propels us here into the third principle of morality you know the other form of the categorical imperative where he says that um the practical principle of the will which is the idea of the will of everything rational being as a will laying down universal law so the will as will in itself laying down universal law in its form as capacity to will in it's um, trying to realize, but never really getting there. And that's something we'll get at in this critique of practical reason, but nevertheless trying. And it is in that effort that we see the glimmer of hope. So as it ends in ourselves as humans and everyone else, we recognize some stake we have in the establishment of universal laws. And this doesn't at least in this text, manifests itself in some kind of like world government or people getting together, sitting around and trying to imagine what these laws can be. It is instead the very possibility that we can imagine people imagining such a capacity that Kant finds so interesting that we can say, could there be a universal law? And how might that look? Not realizing that it is that very questioning that is that universal law, that very capacity to propose the universal law. And this is all evidence of the fact that we aren't perfect. So we aren't gods. So everything that we do is going to lead us astray. Not one of our acts immediately is in accordance with the moral law. If any one of us acted in such a way that our actions immediately complied with the moral law, that person would be God because they would have a direct connection between the phenomenal world and the noumenal world. That is the realization of the moral law within maxims. So how can we read then um, a maxim, that is a subjective principle, an opinion almost, something that I want for myself, in intuition and in feeling as evidence of a moral law? So how do we look to the world of experience and see evidence of a moral law? And he says, well, there are three things to can say, to recognize here. If we look upon these maxims as, as number one, as a form, specifically, they are all universal. That leads to this formulation of the moral imperative. So ma- moral imperative, sorry, maxims must be chosen as if they were to hold a universal law of nature. The second one, a ma- as matter or content, that is as an end that leads to the formulation of all merely relative ends, ones that people choose, must be restricted by and subordinated to the status of rational beings, which are not chosen as ends, but are ends by their very nature, and are therefore ends in themselves. So here he's just repeating the, the uh, categorical imperatives that we've already laid out. And then thirdly, a complete fixing of all maxims through this formulation. All the maxims that come from your own law-giving should harmonize with a possible realm of ends as with a realm of nature. And this, the, you know, this categorical imperative that takes these different forms is the roadmap for the goodwill. So then he gives five different key terms uh, of morality, which I'm just going to blast through pretty quickly. It's not all that important. It won't help you in the next book or anything, but there is something I want to kind of or at least his discussion of duty is important. Um, so he said that says that there is permitted morality, which is what, which is an action that can coexist with the autonomy of the will. Remember, the will is autonomous because it it it, uh, it is in the end itself. It is in it for its own end, as opposed to heteronomous, where it would be uh, existing only for the sake of something else. You know, I act this way for the candy I'll get later, for example. Uh, it is autonomous when it does it for its own self. There's forbidden morality, which is one that clashes with autonomy of the will. There's holy morality, 
a will whose maxims are necessarily in harmony with the laws of morality, which is like God. Then there's obligation, which happens when a will is not absolutely good and beckons orders or obligations so that it can be good. Then there's duty, which is the objective necessity of an action from obligation or formed by obligation. And a person here is sublime. Uh, and this isn't one of the key, key kind of words here. This is an aside. He says that a person is sublime when they are a giver of the law. You know, when they have attained that status of lawgiver as a universal law in as a as a good as goodwill, and that'll be important for the third critique. That is the critique of judgment, but we'll get there in a few weeks. So then he asks, how can we know if morality is not just an empty concept? You know, a transcendent thing that he criticized, like in the first critique, and he's going to try and answer that with the next chapter. That is chapter three, which is moving from the metaphysics of morals to the critique of pure practical reason. So this is where he's going to bring in the discussion of freedom, where he says that to be free means that you are not affected by outside forces. Now, we know that's not the case in the realm of the phenomenal world because everything is determined by cause and effect. There's no effect that exists outside of a cause. But how is it possible then to claim that freedom exists if it complies to moral laws? So if I say that we are free in terms of our noumenal side, that is free from the realm of cause and effect, of the laws of cause and effect, that would then imply that we are coextensive with the moral law, which is the argument that he sets out to make really at the end of here and in the, in the critique of practical reason, that moral law and freedom necessarily imply the other. How can we claim that there's such a thing as freedom if there's such a thing as a moral law? Because a moral law imparts rules and guidance upon freedom which you might say well then it's not free then it's uh, contained by that very uh the very law and kant says no because it all that freedom wants is to comply to that law that is exactly what freedom is is the compliance with that law so we know that reason is that guiding thing between the noumenon and the phenomenon as I've already already shown. So we know that reason is somewhat free, as I've said before, because otherwise cause and effect would determine everything and then there wouldn't be any room for choice, even though we do, for some reason, have a capacity to choose, lest um, someone with like a an amazing scientific invention could technically, because of everything follows the law of cause and effect, could determine everything in advance, because that can't happen, even hypothetically, it shows that there must be a sliver of hope for freedom that seeps into the phenomenal world. And it must derive then from the noumenal world, from something that um, transcends, yet we can't explain it, we can't see it, that transcends the sensible world of appearances. So, uh, Freedom and the moral law, because the moral law exists in the noumenon as well, are extensive. So we know that freedom abides by its own principles because it is free, and those principles are the moral law, that thing, you know, in the noumenon. So we only see things happening in the world, and it is from that that we develop, uh, you know, reason that we can apply then to the intelligible world of the noumenon that is only imagined speculatively. So we are free in terms of our noumenal side, but we are not free in terms of our being uh, in the physical world determined by cause and effect. So we can't prove why freedom exists, why it's possible, what it looks like really, but we know that it's there. And we, we can only speculate, you know, we only hypothesize, because if we tried to go any further than that, we'd be saying... Uh, we'd be um, applying empty concepts. We'd be uh, claiming things that we don't actually have the capacity to claim. We'd be sophists, essentially. Um, and then he pretty much ends this book, which, like, I really want to emphasize, he completes in the next uh, book, The Critique of Practical Reason. But he concludes this by saying that we truly don't comprehend the unconditioned, unconditional practical necessity of the moral imperative. We don't, we don't, because we are, you know, as humans, we are flawed. As philosophers, we are flawed. We don't have that 
uh, grounding to fully get at that part of the world, if it can be said to exist. But we can suppose it's there. And because we know it's there, we know it must be free from cause and effect, and therefore it must have its own guiding principles from which everything else emanates. So therefore, the structure that we see in the world must be structured by something underneath it. And who knows, maybe beneath that there's another, like a noumenon to the noumenon. Who knows, a god, a god's god, if we can say such a thing, um, without getting it too far into wacky town but yeah that more or less covers it if if i said anything incorrect you know how to let me know you know any share like subscribe whatever um would be really helpful um yeah catch you next time take care